This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Dave Wenergren, CEO of ACT-IAC and former CIO of the U.S. Navy. IAC is a national nonprofit private partnership dedicated to advancing the business of government through the application of technology. He has extensive leadership experience in information technology, change management, and has served in several senior positions in both the private and the public sector to include several positions in the DOD to include the CIO of the U.S. Navy. So first, David, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Absolutely, Eileen. It's an honor to be here with you today. So let's start off with, can you describe your leadership style? Sure. I'd like to think that I'm an inclusive kind of leader. A long ago, far away, I once co-authored a book called The Power of Team. And uh, this idea about it, we're better together than we are individually is like something that I feel I felt really strongly about throughout my career. You know, if you surround yourself with uh, the best available draft choices, rather than just hiring to the job description, you'll get an A team. And then if you can galvanize that team with a sense of urgency and a compelling vision, you're, you're off and running. And then a good leader has to know to get out of the way at that point and let others pick up the brush and feel like they own a piece of the business and they can take pride in creating the future. So I've often been described as someone who does a good job of helping create win-wins. Um, you know, it's important because everybody's got a point of view and, and getting people to work together is really important. This idea about the power of coalitions is important to me. And I'd also think that as a leader, I've, I've fostered a uh, an environment of continuous learning. And then finally, I think, you know, my leadership style is one of, by example. Um, I've, I've read a lot of leadership books. One of my f- all-time favorite leadership quotes is by a former CEO, Larry Bossidy, who uh, said, leaders get the behaviors that they exhibit and tolerate. And so you really are an amplifier for your organization. If you're a little jaded or cynical or fearful, boy, that just has a resonating amplifying effect on the rest of the team. So it starts with you and what you do much more than what you say. So do you ever alter that leadership uh, approach uh, on, on a situation or, or an audience? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that there are like some fundamental truths that you have to hold on to. I mean, you can't change your ethics and you can't change your style. And, uh, and you know, consistency is crucial, particularly in today's environment where there's so much uncertainty all around us. Your team needs to have that continuity and consistency. But but having said that, yes, you need to know your audience. You know, I, I often talk about the principle of active listening, you know, and how, how so often we're already gearing up our response to the person who's talking because we know that they're not right and we're right. And we're not listening to them. And so, yes, you need to sort of alter your style depending upon what's the goal you're trying to achieve and how willing is are the other people in trying to get to that goal with you. And so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I often use a phrase called business judo, you know, it's a lot easier to help like tip somebody in a direction that they want to go rather than forcing them to go someplace they didn't want to go. So yeah, it's important to be able to be flexible enough to recognize the audience you're dealing with and try to use some skills that will help get them to get on board. 
So any stories that you can share about a leadership challenge and how you faced an obstacle, maybe where you had to be flexible or use your judo uh, business uh, approach and how you got through it? Yeah, well, you know, a couple of things come to mind. You know, in, back in my days in the Department of Defense, I had the honor of leading the, uh, the smart card team for DOD, the development of the common access card, which was a big, bold step forward and, and not something that people were really envisioning. And so that sort of spoke to the need that uh, sometimes, the, you know, the user always comes first, but sometimes the user doesn't know what the future may require of them. And so people weren't really asking for a smart card at the time, but they were looking for a security solution. And by being able to sort of galvanize people towards a bigger vision, we were able to deliver a solution that did far more than just the problem of the day, which was, you know, network security issues around password cracking and, and deliver something that allowed for, you know, a couple of decades now of e-business and digital signatures and, and encryption and a bunch of other good stuff. And, you know, any IT initiative that's still, I'll say, in use 20 years later is, is kind of cool. But if I go back even further, like a really compelling story for me where I learned a lot was before I was a technology guy, I worked in the installation management logistics business in the Navy and I had to regionalize and reorganize the Navy shore establishment. It happened after I was done doing uh, base closures in the 90s. So I was, you know, part of like big economic decisions. And then after that was all done, I came back to help you reorganize the places that you hadn't closed. So, I wasn't necessarily that popular going into those things, but, but I learned a lot by helping to gather together the leaders in the local area so that you had people who had skin in the game, but then couple them with external experts who could force them to sort of think out of their comfort zone beyond the status quo that they knew. And it, it was a powerful inflection point because you ended up having leaders who began to think differently because they were pushed a little bit, but at the end of the day, they still owned the answer. And when we did the regionalization exercises, we ended up saving substantial amount of money. And San Diego was a beautiful test case of it where, where the team came up with, you know, after a lot of hard work, a lot of argument, a lot of division, came up with a great proposal to save money and improve the services. And then a couple of years later, I came back to San Diego um, as the deputy CIO for the Navy before I was the CIO. So a new job and the regional commander wanted to tell me about all the things that she and her team had done to regionalize the Navy. And I told him they did a fabulous job and I was so proud of them. And when we left, the guy who was traveling with me said, well, you know, they didn't even like realize that, you know, because they had all changed. Navy commanders leave every couple of years. They didn't realize that you were the guy who came and forced them to do all that change. And I said, well, absolutely. And to me, that's the prize. Because had it been all about me and my personal leadership to push them to do something, it would only have lasted as long as I was there doing it. But because we crafted a solution that forced them to stretch out of their comfort zone, but then take ownership themselves, they owned it and they delivered it. And that's what made change stick. Dave, you're certainly a great leader, but any leaders come to mind from your past that taught you important lessons that you wish all leaders could learn as they progress? I read a lot, and I, and I think that there's some important things. Obviously, there's been a lot of leaders who have affected me. I've worked with some outstanding individuals, a former mentor and leader that I worked for, Dan Porter, taught me about compassion and dignity and business judo and the, the creating a culture of continuous learning. I watched Admiral Vern Clark when he was the chief of naval operations talk about bold visions and big goals and the importance of relentlessly communicating and forcing people out of their comfort zone. But, but I think that the important lessons that I've learned that, that I would love for everybody else to learn is that you can't do it all yourself. And when you start your career, you begin as like a subject matter expert. And so you're really good at doing the things that are your responsibility. And then of course, as you become a leader, it becomes a lot less about 
the, the technical competency and more about the people and vision aspects of the job. And so learning that you can't do it yourself, that you, that you will collapse under the strain of trying to do it all yourself, even if in the beginning it feels like it would be easier to just do the job yourself than to take the time to teach somebody else. The idea about teaching others to fish is hugely important. Uh, Peter Drucker had a great leadership quote about uh, effective leaders make people's strengths effective and their weaknesses irrelevant. And, and I think that's really crucial. Like how much time are you spending on people? And when you have a chance to hire a really 18 player, don't miss out hiring them just because the original job you were looking for might not have fit them perfectly. Bring them on board and then help them to find a great job. And you know, Jim Collins in his fabulous book, Good to Great, talked about the, getting the right people on the bus. So absolutely people have to be your top priority. And then, and then you know, as the leader, your goal is to create the vision and give them the tools to succeed, but then get out of their way. Let them know that you have their back, but let them go and succeed too. So I think, I think it's those issues about you can't do it yourself and you have to learn to let go of personal control have been hugely important in my career. So what obstacles and challenges did you encounter on a personal level that you had to overcome in order for you to become an effective leader? You said, uh, as Peter Drucker put it, uh, your weaknesses become irrelevant if you hire the right folks. Yeah. Well, and part of that is, you know, that you, you ought to put people in the right seats on the bus, right? And so, you, you know, you hire somebody and you play to their strengths. You, you shouldn't give them the job that doesn't play to their strengths. Now, having said that, you know, there's a, there's a counterpoint that says you have to make sure you have the right people on the bus. If, if, if somebody's not a good fit for the team, particularly if they're not a good fit for the culture of the organization, if they come into the organization and they don't have the, all, the, all the technical skills they need, you can help them be trained and do mentoring and things like that. But if they're not aligned to the culture of the organization, they will consume your time. And so the corollary is getting the right people on the bus is helping the, the wrong people find a better bus to be on. So, so I, you know, that's, that's an important side point. And we often feel like that's like really hard in government, but it's hard, but it's worth doing. And so I think the obstacles that for me personally were the, the first one was the one I already mentioned about stop wanting to do it all yourself. You have to learn to let go and let others do it, which has been an important thing for me. And the other one that's sort of interesting is uh, this idea around crucial conversations. Another great book, by the way. But, uh, you know, when, we when I was working for the Navy, all the senior executives and admirals and, and Marine Corps generals had to go to, uh, go to this business class. And, uh, and, and as part of the business class, you learned a lot of new, new thinking around how technology companies in the 21st century are working. But also there was a lot of data that was collected. And I was fascinated that, that all the people that took the course, you know, there were some common threads that, that were obvious, like a lot of type A personalities and a lot of control freaks that want to like, you know, give me the job and get out of my way. But the other thing that I found fascinating was across that group of senior leaders, there was a common theme about the reluctance to want to talk about personnel issues and, and take on things that I would describe as crucial conversations. And, and as I said before, you know, if you have someone that isn't working out well, you've got to take it on. Otherwise, the, the few people that are not working out well will be just like consume your time as opposed to the people who, who are doing a good job and need you to help coach them to even better outcomes. And so this idea about being willing to take on crucial conversations as soon as possible and not letting them delay is another important lesson learned. I'm speaking with Dave Wenergren, CEO of ACT-IAC and former CIO of the U.S. Navy. After the break, we'll discuss leadership decision-making. 
communication, and why it is important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with David Wenergren, CEO of ACT-IAC and former CIO of the U.S. Navy. Dave, as I mentioned, what is the most important type of decision you can make as a leader of an organization? Yeah, you know, to me, there's like two that rank right up there together. And the first one is one that we talked a little bit about in the first segment, and that was the the people, people decisions. Leading is all about people and uh, who will follow you. And as you move from being an action officer or a subject matter expert to being a leader, there is a fundamental shift in the time that you spend on the technical natures of the job versus the time that you spend on people. And so attracting the right people, hiring the right people, getting the right people into the right jobs, helping them to grow, to mentor them, those are like the most important decisions that any leader can make. And then coupled with that is this idea around strategy and vision. You know, there are a lot of managers in an organization and management is about the best use of resources. And and there's a big difference that maybe we'll talk about later between management and leadership, you know, And and this idea about leading is about setting the vision building the coalition, helping to create the future. And so for the leader to be able to look beyond what I describe as the tyranny of the inbox, the tyranny of the moment, you know, it's so easy for your managers to be consumed by the closest alligator to the boat, as they say. And it's the leader's job to look a step beyond that. And so get the right people in the organization, make sure that they're, they're fulfilled and they're working to their fullest potential. And then take the look beyond today so that you can see the opportunities and threats that loom on the horizon rather than the day-to-day things that are just going on right now. How do you approach what you decide and what do you do? Do you make a decision by committee or do you think leaders should just make them? What is your, your approach to making decisions? Yeah, well, you know, you know, we've talked a lot about the right people. And so if you have, a, if you have an all-star team, you know, you ought to let them play in the game. And so I encourage ideas, opinions, options. I've never liked organizational charts that were really hierarchical where the, the boss only talked to one or two other people. I prefer bigger, more inclusive leadership teams. So, man, encouraging ideas and encouraging people to be able to speak freely is just super important. Not only will you get, like, you know, the better ideas of a group are better than just the ideas of the one person, but also they'll have skin in the game about the ownership of what you're going to end up doing. But at the end of the day, the buck does stop with the leader. And so it's important to recognize, I think, the difference between consensus and coalitions. You know, John Cotter talks a lot about in his leading change books about, about the power of a coalition to, to create success. But, but, you know, if you're trying to do something new and different, it is unlikely you'll get everybody involved. So if you try to create 100% consensus, you'll be forever mired in the status quo. You know, it takes a, it doesn't take a thousand people to change the world, but it takes a few people positioned in the right place. So as a leader, finding that right coalition. But at the end of the day, when it comes time to make a decision, you got to make a decision. You got to communicate relentlessly there. You cannot communicate too much. You know, it's, it's one thing for the leader to say we're going to go towards a point A. But if that leader just does it one time, you know, you won't make much progress. And so checking back in communicating relentlessly the goal, and then assessing the progress of your plans. You know, only a fool also fails to adjust course if you find yourself no longer heading in the right direction. So, you know, as you're communicating, you're hopefully gathering data about the progress you're making so you can adjust course. 
So do you think the decision process needs to change under stressful times? Like for an example, you know, our current pandemic situation with COVID-19, does the decision or the communication process need to change a little bit to properly lead people underneath these difficult times? Yeah, you know, that's such a great question. One of the things that I've noticed this year is that, you know, the world the world's moving at such a fast pace. Even before there was a pandemic, change was happening so quickly. You could no longer like sit and rest on your laurels. You know, it's talked about in so many books, like uh, the Clayton Christensen book on innovation and stuff. I mean, you got to keep moving. But then when the pandemic hit, you created this uncertainty about the future. And so I feel like everybody is sort of like, you know, they're doing their best, adapting to life in a virtual world. And but but the uncertainty has just been tremendous. And so you know, how can you help people have a little bit of clarity and certainty during times of uncertainty becomes like really important. And so, I, you know, I think when you have a stressful time like we have now, it does certainly help you to focus. You know, there was, there's that saying about don't let a good crisis go to waste. There, you know, I mean, there is certainly something about, you know, when like it's all time for all hands on deck, that's a great time to sort of wipe away the extraneous stuff that doesn't matter as much and focus on the things that really do matter. Because oftentimes I feel like in these complex organizations that we're all a part of, you know, we focus on too many things simultaneously. And so honing in on what matters, it can be a relief, right? And, and certainly can provide some clarity in a time of uncertainty. So, yeah, I think, you know, you have to be really sensitive to the people implications. I mean, you know, I, I, at ACT-IAC, I have a great team and they've done a super job of, of moving to an all virtual world in a business that was predominantly all about people getting together in person. And, and yet, you know, you don't lose sight of the fact that, that it's hard for them too. And so how can you help them have some clarity and focus? I think that becomes even more important during a time of crisis. So which is most important to your organization, mission, core values, or vision? I mean, is, you've, you've hit all three of those in the last uh, <laughs> segment. So uh, what is most important? Or which yeah, I know. I, I feel like that's, a, that's another great question. And I feel like I'm going to cop out because I'm going to say like all three. And here's why. Because they form a tapestry together. If you don't have a vision, then any road will do. And you will lack a sense of urgency and alignment of your efforts. Uh, a number of years ago, George Labovitz and Victor Rosansky wrote a book called The Power of Alignment. They talked about how important it was for an organization to have a main thing, this like sentence that galvanized all of the work that you could that you would do as an organization so you knew whether the things you were about to start would fit or whether there were things that you were doing that you should stop doing. So if you if you don't have a you know a vision, then heaven help you. As you, as you dance around, but and but number two, that vision has to be mission focused. You know, Simon Sinek wrote the great book Start with Why, where he said, you know, we spend far too much time talking about the what, and not enough time talking about the why are we doing it. And and I find that particularly common in the technology business, where we'll get all liquored up about a new system, and we'll create the acronym for the new system before we even have like started working on that new system. You know, my favorite acronym being the one in DoD that was. Dim sum, which took a lot of work to come up with an acronym that would spell out dim sum. And since that time, it's now referred to as Genesis. But, you know, it becomes this shiny object syndrome. If you're, if you're not focused on the why does it matter, how does it improve the mission of the organization, then you won't get very far. And that will be really bad, too. And then if you don't then think about, like, the values of the organization, then you, you won't make good choices for sure. So, you know, if you, if you align to the mission with a vision that you can follow and you keep your ethics and values right, 
then you will you will you will do better. There's a guy named Doug Reddy, a professor at MIT, who talked a lot about you know that that when you come into a new organization, no matter how good you are, there's a learning curve that takes place as you become aligned to the mission and value, the values of the organization, and also become more competent in your job. And the goal, of course, if you imagine that as a you know as a quadrant chart where like a alignment to the values of the organization is the horizontal and competency is the vertical. You'd like to get from the bottom left to the upper right. And if you're way down low on the right where you're like aligned to the values but not competent yet, I can help you get there. I can train you and give you mentoring and coaching. But I mean, if you're not aligned to the values of the organization, you become a cancer in that organization. And that doesn't mean that the organization should be full of sycophants. It's not about people being yes, man, but it's about it's about being aligned to the mission and the outcomes of the organization. And if you don't find yourself aligned to that, then you are definitely working in the wrong place. So that was a long-winded answer where I failed to pick one of the three. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black. And today I'm talking with Dave Rennergan, CIO Act IAC and former Navy CIO. So how have you focused in your time horizons changed? I mean, you've had some pretty senior positions through your career. Has it changed the way that you approach it? <laughs> I feel like the, the more senior you get, the more your job has to focus on the longer time horizon. And the older that you get, the faster time seems to pass by. So maybe the ratio stays the same, I'm not sure. But I do feel like as you move from being a technical expert, subject matter expert, to being a manager, supervisor, to being a leader. You know, you spend more and more of your time on the longer term look and less time on the shorter near term look. And so, you know, so I will say in large organizations, I say this particularly for my brothers and sisters who still work in government, you know, it takes a fascinating blend of patience and impatience because, you know, big organizations take time to change. And if every time it doesn't quite work out right, you become hugely dissatisfied, you know, or impatient about it, then you'll have a very unhappy life. But at the same time, if you're not impatient enough to keep pushing, you know, the journey of change will, will never get started. So you, you brought up uh, earlier in the interview, the thoughts about managing versus leading. So now at your stage in your career, what is your thought of, about managing versus leading as a senior executive? Yeah. Well, you know, we need, we need good managers, <laughs> but I will say in many organizations, we are far more dire need of great leaders. Um, I think, you know, I think the nature of most organizations, both public and private, especially larger organizations, is to spend a lot of time developing management skills and perhaps not enough time developing leadership skills. If you imagine that management is all about the, I'll say the effective use of resources. Right, then, then leadership is all about the people and who follows you and why and how do you create the compelling vision that, that people will want to go on this journey of change with you. Um, because you know, it's, nowadays it's always a journey of change. I mean, there's almost no job in government or industry right now where things are the same as they were. You need to look no farther than the power of AI and robotic process automation about changing the nature of jobs. So every job is changing. And, and if you can't like sort of move with that, then, then heaven help you. But, but I do feel like we, we train a lot of people about, you know, how, really necessary skills. You know, how does the contracting system work? How does the financial management system, the budget process work? How does the hiring process work? All those are necessary things. But I think we could all do with a little bit of injection of more, more talk about leadership. 
I, I've already thrown out a bunch of books, but I'll throw out the risk of uh, boring the reader, the listeners. I'll, I'll throw out one more. There's a there's a book by Max Dupree called Leadership is an Art. It's a great little small read. He's a former CEO, and he talks about a bunch of great leadership anecdotes. But one of them that has stuck with me in my career is the importance of covenant leadership. That that you have an obligation to your organization and all the people that are a part of it to help them be their best, to help them do their best, to help the organization be ethical, successful, you know, moving forward, caring, a compassionate organization. All those things are your responsibility as a leader. And they're not necessarily the skills that you develop in a management class. I'm speaking with Dave Wenergan, CEO of APT-IAC and former CIO of the U.S. Navy. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Dave Wenergan, CEO of ACT-IAC and former CIO of the U.S. Navy. Dave, uh, getting organizations to adopt change are always some of the biggest leadership challenges. How do you approach leading an adoption to change or major changes in an organization? You know, I think in today's world, it's perhaps the most important job for a leader. This idea about successfully leading change permeates every aspect of our, I'll say, our personal and professional life. The world is changing around us at such a rapid pace that you have to be willing to change to keep up. And so, you know, so it's something that I've given a lot of thought to and, and have a lot of passion about. And, and if I had to sort of boil it down, I feel like there's like sort of three things that, that are really important. You know, one is that people have to feel compelled to act. You know, this, the whole story is about creating a sense of urgency. You know, in John Cotter's Leading Change book, that was the first step of the eight-step process of change. And then he, he realized after he wrote that book that it was such an important portion of the book that he ended up writing a whole second book about, you know, about a sense of urgency. Because, you know, creating that burning platform, that compelling leadership vision that, that will get people to step out of their comfort zone and, and go on a journey of change is just, it's just hugely important. So first and foremost, leaders to successfully implement change have to make people feel compelled to act. And then, and then you have to give them the tools to act. You know, you have an environment that has a bias towards action and change or, or people so risk averse or fearful that if they come up with a new idea that they'll be squished, right? And so are you encouraging innovative ideas and new approaches? Are you giving people that freedom of a newer space? I, I feel so often the status quo sort of gets a buy. We talked about IT systems before, you know, and so the IT system gets developed, it gets in the budget, it gets through the acquisition process, and then it goes off, you know, and, and it's been it's been in place for years. And, and if it asks for a lot more money next year, it may get screwed in the budget, but if it doesn't ask for a lot more money, it kind of lives on and on. And, and as a change leader, sometimes it's a it's your job to tell people that their their babies are ugly, you know, and that uh, or the, in the case of a lot of technology systems, that their their babies are so old now that they should have gone off to college a long time ago. And so, how do you get it so the status quo doesn't get a buy? And instead, because in the normal functioning of an organization, the new idea is the one that gets all the scrutiny and all the torture and the you know maybe we're not going to approve you and right. And so, how do you flip that? It, it's something that uh, that Clayton Christensen talked about in the innovators' dilemma. You know? Because you have to let the new idea be able to get some escape velocity so it doesn't become consumed by the antibodies of the organization. And so, you know, how, how are you helping people with the tools? So if you feel compelled to act, you have the tools to act, then I guess the third one is, you know, are, are people empowered to act? 
You know, are, are they personally invested in the outcome? Do they have skin in the game? Because if people are just sort of sitting back as passive observers, then change won't stick. You know, and uh, you know how it goes. There's like, you know, like total quality management, Lean Six Sigma. If you, if you love tools to help you get to the future, you get very excited about each of those new sort of management schools of thought now agile and devops and stuff but if you're like if you're resistant to change then you look well can i outlast that that fad you know and, and so you got to make sure that uh that people are empowered to act but they also you know feel that sense of ownership that they have to take action so the clock speed of technology is just racing ahead um what uh the change in technology uh today is what maybe 10 years ago uh, would take uh, five years versus one year. So, you know, you've um, managed uh, quite a bit of technology projects while you were in the government. You know, how do you keep a team focused on what sometimes people might believe is the impossible? And then any stories that you might have about the adoption of change, the adoption of innovation, the change in technology that actually really ignites the ability to be able to meet the mission that you could share with us? Yeah, sure. I think that, uh, you know, you, having a clear vision helps and, and helping people remove distractions is so many distractions in our life today and, and, you know, relentlessly communicating and then like celebrating your success. It's, it's hugely important to measure the progress of your plans. You know, uh, Larry Bossini, Ram Sharan wrote the great book about execution, talks a lot about the power of performance measurement. If you're an optimist like me, you call that management by attention, you know, because we're focused on the thing that matters to me. If you're, if you're pessimist, you may call it management by embarrassment because I'm calling you out by the numbers. And, and I don't really care which way you look at it. It is, the, it is a true statement that the things we measure are the things we focus our time and attention on. And, and the power of service level agreements and outcome-based performance measures are they allow you to track progress and to be able to see that you're getting there. No matter how good a change leader you are, as you implement a new initiative, you're going to go through some perturbations of change. And it's going to be like tough and people are going to not be sure. And I watch these programs that, you know, they get in the budget and they get through the acquisition process and they still fail because, you know, it's not as good as we thought it would be. And so managing those sets of expectations that really helped by being able to sort of measure the progress of our plans and then and then celebrating successes. We, we spent a lot of time in this marketplace criticizing things and not enough time celebrating successes. So I think all those things are really important. And, you know, and I, I look back at, you know, one of my last gigs in the Department of Defense, you know, was when the proliferation of, uh, I'll say, Internet-based capabilities, like everything from YouTube to social media, powerful changes in, in the market. And at that time, great reluctance on the part of a number of senior leaders in the Department of Defense to take advantage of those tools for, for a number of legitimate reasons, you know, security concerns, bandwidth concerns, and things like that. But but again, to the point that you, you made a few minutes ago, the world's changing. And if you don't keep up, you're going to get left behind. And so, you know, what I learned from that situation was, boy, it's tough. It ended up going all the way to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, and I still have some scars to show from it. But 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 we were able to get like the 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 users, the operators, like the the combatant commanders that actually had to do like how do you how do you partner with non-government organizations or allied coalition partners? To them, the use of these social media tools and stuff became powerful for the mission, not just because we wanted to watch March Madness from our laptop, right? And so you were able to sort of remove decisions that were based on anecdote and fear and replace them with data-driven decisions. And, and, and that just, you know, goes so far to help you get through a, a change challenge. 
So there's never been more changes than what we're living through right now with COVID-19. I think the Pentagon pivoted tens of thousands of employees from being in the building to telecommuting. Um, what do you think will be the biggest challenge for government executives in the aftermath of COVID-19? Yeah, boy, you know, you, you are spot on. I mean, this new normal pan, post-pandemic is, uh, you know, is just going to be so full of change. And, and as they say, times of change are times of opportunity. So I, I'd say we have a boatload of opportunity coming up if we think about it. And part of it is, you know, new th- issues that will matter a lot. Like it's not just surviving, but thriving in a virtual world. Even when we have a vaccine and even when we begin to go back to doing some things in person. I mean, the, the nature of work has changed. And there's a whole bunch of stuff where you used to like go, go on a plane for a one day meeting that you can do on a Zoom call now, right? I mean, so the, how do you take advantage of these new virtual tools to improve collaboration and connection and all the things that help make change work is just going to be super important. And then also this idea about like resiliency of an organization. Resiliency and agility are just going to come front and center for, for us all collectively. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about in everything from cybersecurity to, to new missions in government about, you know, moving from being risk averse to managing risk. And, and I think this year has just like made that even more evident that you have to be willing to manage risks rather than try to avoid them. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Dave Wenergren, CEO of ACT-IAC and former CIO of the U.S. Navy. Next, we'll find out what Dave's advice is to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Dave Wenergren. CEO of ACT-IAC and former CIO of the U.S. Navy. Now, Dave, we're on the eve of a presidential election. What advice would you offer to career government executives as they navigate these changes in leadership and what will take place regardless of the uh, election outcome, especially since this will be such a uh, not normal, is the best way to put it, election? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's an important thing to think about. Um, at ACT IAC, we do a lot of work around elections, like what are the topics that matter. Um, I, I would offer to career executives that, you know, regardless of election outcome, like you're going to have this huge change in leadership. I mean, you already see a lot of leaders leaving. CIO Suzette Ken has left, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a great turnover regardless of how the election turns out. And so either way, right, there's going to be a bunch of new bosses. And, uh, and human nature is often to abandon the work of your predecessors in favor of the new agenda that you want to capitalize on, even if you're in the same party. And so, you know, and, but we all know that in government, there are crucial initiatives that need to continue on regardless of party or individual. And so, as well as new issues that need to be addressed. And so, you know, my, my one piece of advice is don't be wed to the name of the initiative. You know, I, I watched as, you know, in the Bush administration, e-government initiatives and lines of business were like big topic, you know, and then the Obama administration came in and, you know, they didn't want to keep that branding. But, but after they were in for a couple of years, they, were, they too recognized the power of shared services and began an initiative around shared services. So the idea about, 
you know, every organization, the government should not be running its own IT ops. And just like every Fortune 100 company uses, you know, a payroll system or a CRM system developed by some company that's expert in that field, you know, you shouldn't be building your one-offs in government that, that, you know, it's not the name of the initiative, it's the nature of the work that needs to survive and live on. And, and the other piece of advice that I would offer to career executives is, you know, you often are thrust into an acting role for a while. And that's, and that's tough because you're not exactly sure how, you know, people, if you have people have your back and can you make big decisions or, you know, should you just be a caretaker? And, and my advice is, you know, it takes a long time to fill these political jobs. You know, I mean, even before the Trump administration, which took, has taken even longer, I mean, it's beginning to take a long, long time to get all these jobs filled. And, uh, and, you know, just sitting still is a really bad idea. You know, as they say, nature abhors a vacuum. So, you know, keep doing the important work that needs to be done. Keep making decisions and keep moving forward. Much better to be able to tell your new boss about all the great things you've gotten accomplished than the fact that you were waiting around for some new guidance. And, and if I can, I mean, I would just throw out that again, you know, this is something that Act I, we think about a lot. And so our, our presidential election project this year is called a, uh, our Agenda 2021 project, we've done a capstone paper that your listeners can find on our websites. Its focus is, uh, its title is Delivering Outcomes, Building Trust. And it offers a lot of important advice about the initiatives that will be super important in the next couple of years. So you brought up act IAC. Tell us about your role as CEO. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to do that. You know, I've, I've uh, I, as the song goes, I've looked at life from both sides now. So I did like you know, 30 some years in government and then a number of years in industry. And now I get to get to run an association that's whole purpose for over 40 years is bringing together government and industry leaders to collaborate on improving mission outcomes, all the things that we've talked about for the last hour, sharing best practices, building relationships. And so, you know, we have a really clear mission in this space, uh, accelerating government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership and education. And that's indeed how we do it. We have a lot of opportunities that uh, government leaders get together with industry leaders to, to work on reports and capability models and thought leadership projects around topics that matter like zero trust networks and IT modernization and customer experience. We do that through communities of interest and federal insights exchanges. We're well known for our professional development programs, which help people develop leadership skills throughout their career, and then the events that we do to try to bring together government and industry. So it's a great job for me. It's something that I have great passion about. So I've been doing it now for almost a year and a half. It's, it's been wonderful. But before that, I had a long time volunteer with the organization. So you've been in uh, public and private service for, you know, a couple of decades. Uh, describe You're your being career kind. path. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say since back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> you and I are about the same age. But you describe your career path. Uh, you know, you went you, you, a long time in public service and now you're private service. What made you take this path? And, and uh, if there was a listener out there that would like to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you have? Yeah. So, you know, so I feel like people manage their careers differently. Some people manage their careers through great planning. You know, they're going to do this for three years and that will lead them to this and that will do this and the sort of map out the careers. And then others like me, you know, like sort of do career planning by chaos. I, and so, you know, if, you, if I look at my career in government, I was, I was the a76 guy that some of your older listeners may remember about, you know, should work be done by the public or private sector. And then, I, as I mentioned earlier, I did the base closure rounds, and then I had to reorganize the places that didn't get closed. And then I moved into the technology world, and my, my first experience was uh, Y2K and, you know, 
the world as we knew it was going to end if we didn't fix the code or retire the code. And uh, and so if you were like a pessimist, you might say like ran from one program being discontent to the other. But but I would, as an optimist, just feel like I've had a career. It's all been about managing complexity and change. And so, you know, and then, and then that career continued in the private sector. I feel like it's really important to be open to opportunities. You know, um, if I was like giving some advice to people that are going to follow along behind me, as it were, I, you know, I would say like, you cannot overstate the importance of building a network of people. The jobs change, but the faces remain the same. And so my, my mentoring advice to young people is like, do not needlessly annoy people because it seems like a massively big government and a massively big technology market, but I guarantee you, you're gonna run into these people over and over again as you go through your careers. Um, you know, some other advice that I'd probably offer would be like, understand yourself, you know, all that sort of touchy-feely stuff that some people love and some people don't love, you know, is, is just super important. You know, understand your Myers-Briggs type, understand your leadership preferences, understand those around you, and, and you'll do a lot better job in your job. And, uh, you know, my, I promise it'll be my last book reference, but there was a book called First Break All the Rules that was a result of a bunch of Gallup poll work. And, uh, you know, it said the three things that matter most in a job are who you work for, who you work with, and what you get to work on. And I've just found that so true. A lot of the stuff that we sweat about, you know, salary benefits, all, the, all that stuff works out. If you don't get those three things right, you are not going to have a happy career. And, uh, and the book asks a lot of hard questions. And one of the ones I love is like, do you have best friends at your job? Which a lot of time people go, well, that's work. That's not like play. That's not like friends. But boy, you spend more time with these people in your job than you may with your family at home. And so, you know, so think about that as you go forward in your career. And then, and then I don't know, maybe, you know, we, we talked a lot before about stop wanting to do it all yourself and be willing to let it go personal control. So I won't do those again. But I will say step boldly into opportunities because I feel like the best adventures that I've had in my career was when somebody offered me like a new job. And I thought when they offered it to me, like, why did they think I would be the right person for that job? That doesn't sound like me at all. And I, you know, took that leap of faith and then like learned more, grew more than I ever would have if I had stayed more in my comfort zone. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Dave Renegan. Dave, I just want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some really valuable advice. Oh, thank you, Eileen. It's been great to be on the show with you. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.